When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I interview John Levy, who is a behavioral scientist best known for his work in influence, human connection, and decision making. We talk about his latest book that's called You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. We specifically speak about what the science and the art of creating deep and meaningful connections with anyone, regardless of stature or celebrity. And he also talks about how to develop influence, gain trust and build community so that we can impact society and achieve what's important to us. Just before we begin, I want to remind you that this podcast is for educational purposes and if you need medical advice, please contact the appropriate medical professional. And now, on to today's podcast. John, I'm so excited to interview you. I love your book. You're invited. Well, you're invited to my podcast, and I'm, I was so enjoying being invited to read your book. I love it. The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. Thank it's you so fantastic. Much. So nice. Thank you for joining me. This is great. Are you kidding? First of all, you have like such a charming accent that I would gladly just sit here and listen to you for hours. So this is going to be a joy for me. It's going to be a joy for me too. And you know what? Thank you for that. You know what grabbed my what grabbed my attention was this book will make you as confident and good looking as your mother says you are. Neva Vardala said that. I thought that was yes. super cute for praise. And then I also love what they said here. You know a lot about human behavior. Your long your research experience. But John is a master of building connections between people and enriching their lives in the process. Just mm. already in the five minutes that we connected prior to this interview, I already felt that. You you just generate an energy of getting people to just be relaxed with each other. So that's fantastic. So you obviously practice what you preach. So thank you for writing this book. And let's dive in because there's a lot in here that people can really benefit from. I already learned a whole bunch of stuff. So thank you so much. So the first thing I'm going to ask you is why you wrote this book. I'm going to selfishly just grab a phrase that I think will really prompt the process. You say on page seven, the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives is the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations we have with them. You're mm-hmm. famous for your dinner parties and the in, those dinner experiences have been come to know as the influences. So with that little bit of background, who are you? What do you do? They've heard your bio. I've said a bunch of things. And it's obviously about deep, meaningful connections and having great dinner parties, but it's a lot more than that. Can you dive in and tell us why you wrote this book and what you do? Sure. So the reason I wrote the book is a little bit different than the reason I, or what I'm known for in the dinners. Uh, So the reason I wrote the book is because I grew up really, really lonely. I was one of these kids that didn't quite fit in. I was super geeky in the 80s. And back then, like... Now you can be really cool and like technology and comic books because all the big movies are, you know, blockbusters and all that, or you can be a dot-com billionaire or something like that. But, but back then that wasn't the way of the world. And I just didn't fit in. And I'd watch these shows on television and of like all these friends hanging out, these ragtag groups. And I would think like, why not me? Why don't I fit in? And as I grew up, I actually came across some research eventually. In 1985, the average American had just about three close friends besides family. By 2004, less than a generation later, we were down to two. Now, what's terrifying about that isn't just that people are losing friends. It's that when you look at the greatest predictors of human longevity, it's our social ties. You look at our business success, it's trust among our coworkers and our sense of belonging, literally our ability to have psychological safety, the feeling that we won't be kicked out of a group because we are reprimanded because we disagree with the group. We can openly voice our opinions. I began to realize that we're more disconnected than ever, more isolated. And the impact of that isolation and loneliness is profound. And eventually what I dedicated myself to understand is how to connect with people and how to develop deep and meaningful relationships. And I'm a behavioral scientist. So I do research. I do 
like the largest study in history on dating. We look, I think it was the largest study. It's 431 million potential matches between people and like ask the question of why people date and all that. And what I ended up doing with all this knowledge is frankly, sounds ridiculous. I had people come to my home, cook me dinner, wash my dishes, clean my floors. And then oddly, they thanked me for the experience, which is like, I, know, I read that. Absolutely. I read that and I thought, wow, okay, John, you need to explain that. <laughs> so in just about 2008, I think it was, I came across a scientific study by these two guys, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. They were curious about the obesity epidemic. Is obesity something that's spread from person to person, like a cold, right? Or coronavirus or something like that? Or is it a percentage of the population? You, to the best of our knowledge, don't get Alzheimer's because you shake hands with somebody who has Alzheimer's, right? It doesn't pass from person to person. And so the traditional thinking was, okay, if you are overweight or you're skinny, it's a genetic thing or it's a behavior that you have. But what they found was that if I have a friend who's obese, my chances increase by 45%. My friends who do not know that person have a 20% increase chance and their friends have a 5% increase chance. And this kind of effect that's several degrees out is true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. Literally everything that we care about seems to spread from person to person. And so I realized that if I wanted to impact the quality of my life, it wasn't just enough to set an alarm for six o'clock in the morning and go to the gym because I just sleep through it. What I needed to do was to actually develop relationships with the people I admire. Those who are professional athletes or who have really good habits, those who understand how to make money and run businesses, or maybe those who are just really geeky like me and are into the sciences. And because the fact was at the age of 28, I was heavily in debt from college. I was overweight. I was single. I, like, it didn't seem that life was going my way. And so I ended up dedicating myself to understand how to connect with the most influential people in our culture in hopes that if I could understand that, not only could I positively impact my life, but if that research is correct, by introducing them to each other, they would positively impact each other's lives. That's incredible. I love that. I love the, and those, that, the, that study. I remember reading that that study and but just hearing you talk about it again, it's just amazing. And this podcast leans towards helping people manage their mental health. And mm. without deep, meaningful connections, we can't have healthy mental health. And and just oh, no. showing that the influence on each other is just is is powerful. We need to dive deeper. But you threw out something there that you did the biggest research study on dating. And I know immediately, I know my listeners, they're all thinking, just tell us a little bit about that before we dive into the book. So if you no don't problem. mind, and I'm, I'm a clinical researcher too. I research, I'm still, I'm got to, we're just doing a huge study now of mental health over COVID and that kind of stuff. So I'd love to hear what your, your information about, just, it's, I know it's probably huge, but if you could yeah, just give so us, I, you, you can... dropped a bomb, give us a few of the... <laughs> <laughs> a few of the pieces. Here's the basics of it. We looked at what would actually cause two people to match and trade contact info and go on a date, right? And we looked across just about any characteristic that we had data on, right? What school people went to, if introversion, extroversion. We looked at religion, preferences, all that kind of stuff. And what we found is, you know how they say opposites attract? There is zero evidence for that whatsoever. Across every characteristic, the more similar you are, the more likely you are to date. In fact, here's the, one of the craziest insights. If you have the same initials, you were 11.3% more likely to date. That's so interesting. 11.3% with initials that are similar. <laughs> it's called implicit egotism. So anything that reminds us of ourselves is more appealing or attractive. And so... The more common ground we have, the more likely we are to connect in general. And so there was one weird exception, right? So if you went to the same type of school, a liberal arts college in the US, you were more likely to date. If you had the same religion, you were more likely to date. But there was one thing that was kind of funny, and that was introversion and extroversion. We thought introverts would date introverts and extroverts would date extroverts. The problem is introverts rarely date introverts because they never start a conversation. Oh, gosh. Isn't that awesome? Kind of obvious. So, That's awesome. Yeah, that is. <laughs> and so you need like just one extrovert and you suddenly find that like the matching rates 
go up. And it's bonkers. If you have two extreme extroverts, they're just dating a ton. Isn't that wild? So it, it's, it's actually really interesting to me because when I look at human connection, I look at it as kind of often fitting into one of two categories. Either how quickly can I find the common ground that we share? So for example, we share research, we share a love of science, we share a love of reading, right? And so it's easy for us to find this common ground. And then we feel a greater level of connectedness. We feel safe. In research, it's sometimes called the mere exposure effect. Just being exposed to something often makes us like it and feel safer with it or trust it. The second option is if we don't have common ground, how do we actually create it? Because if you take me and somebody from the other side of the world who has, doesn't speak the same language, doesn't have the same culture like anything, we can still have a feeling of real connection and belonging if we create common ground, usually through an activity or shared effort. And there's this general view. So let's say, Doc, I want to win you over, right? I want you to like me. So the general view, at least in American business, is I'm going to send you a gift or I'm going to take you out for an expensive meal. And frankly, those things are kind of awkward and people tend to throw out the gifts or re-gift them. The exact opposite is what actually works and it's called the Ikea effect. So we disproportionately care about our Ikea furniture because we have to assemble it. And anything that we invest effort into, we care about disproportionately. So parents who, you know, they love their kids because they're a pain in the butt and they have to raise them, not despite it. And that's the way we are with relationships. If I can find a way or an activity for both of us to invest effort together to overcome some challenge, we're actually going to care more about each other. That'll be our common ground. Is one of your 2021 New Year's resolutions to read more? Well, I've got an amazing hack to help you achieve your goal 10 times over. It's an app called Blinkist, and it's one of my favorite apps ever. Why? Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of non-fiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute, on your lunch break or while you exercise. 8 million people are using Blinkist right now and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health to history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from the bestsellers list, as well as the classic non-fiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed non-fiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leap to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leap. That is amazing. And that's, that kind of leads totally directly into this book. I mean, it's all kind of blended, isn't it? The concept, yeah. you went from dating, and re- which is connection, relationships, common yeah. ground, and then into this. I love that. that so it's the similarities and the, and the creating. I like the creating because what you've also given is there are similarities between people that will draw them together, but you can also create similarities. So in other words, you can actually connect with, with anyone. You can find something that you said two people that are, yeah. you've just been to Korea recently with your, just with your, with your new book being translated into Korean. These, you don't know, maybe, I don't know if you know the language or not, but it's a different culture, but you, but you had a, but you had a common ground. They like your content. They like what the, the, the message you're bringing. And that was the, the collaborative connection. And so, and this is why I launched that dinner because I, you know, I wanted to connect with the most influential people in our culture. So what I did was I created a dinner where 12 people are invited. They cook together and, but they're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. And when they sit down to eat, they get to guess what everybody does. They find out that it's a Nobel laureate, an Olympic medalist, a member of royalty, an editor-in-chief of a famous magazine, a celebrity, a musician. And because they cooked together anonymously, there was no status. And so suddenly they care more about each other and trust each other more in an hour of cooking than they would have, you know, 
500 Zoom meetings or team yeah, meetings. Yeah, yeah, and meeting each other's published papers and, you yeah. know, as you say, showing what I do kind of thing, all the external, yeah. So I'm a strong believer that you can really develop a sense of belonging or trust or with just about anybody. And the key is to really just understand how we function as people. I love that. There's a quantum physicist that I follow who's very theoretical, and he, he makes a statement that I quote often, and he says that it's not about you, it's about you in the world. And it kind of epitomizes what you're doing with mm. your work is, you know, encouraging that. It's very encouraging because it, 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 you go to the basic core of human nature, which is one of survival and love and connection. And can you imagine if people applied these kind of principles that you teach in this book and in just in our current political climate and our current, you know, very aggressive climate where everyone's mm. fighting with everyone else just to, to, there's something common. You know, we have our humanity and our survival as common things. We would think we could work around those. And how we could work at that, because that's really what you're saying, essentially. We can find that similarity. We can find that deep, meaningful connection. It's interesting you say that. One of my favorite moments, I've hosted 242 dinners, I think, in 10 cities in three countries. And one of my favorite moments was we were all guessing what one particular person does. And it turns out that he manages a very right-wing media outlet. And the woman sitting next to him is a extreme left-wing advocate. And she turns to him and said, I couldn't like you more as a person and like what you do less. And that's when I know, knew that the dinner was a success because suddenly they were treating each other like people that had a difference of opinion rather than enemies that were at, at war. And that, that was huge to me. That's huge. You're telling me that it gives me goosebumps because it's really kind of the whole concept of our being human again and how we've dehumanized everything from mental health to politics to everything has all become so dehumanized and so which leads to so much conflict. Mm. But as you quite right is you strip away all the external and you just get down to the core humanity. People will work together and, and bond and it's brilliant. It's I I've got to attend one of these dinner meetings one day. I want to on one of your dinner meetings. You'd be to invite me, John. <laughs> Oh my goodness, this is some fantastic. Okay, so I don't even know. Now, there's a couple of things I wanted to focus in on. I mean, there's so much. Okay, this quote here really amplifies what you're saying. And I use the word amplify because it's in here. Our results are amplified when our relationships share a sense of community. So that whole, talk about, talk, talk about that statement because it bounces nicely from what you've just been sharing. Absolutely. So what the tendency is when I meet somebody important is to want to hold that relationship. and not expose them to the other people in my world, because who knows, they might embarrass me there, something bad might happen. But that actually goes against what actually works. And I'll give you an example. So let's say the two of us know each other. And then there's another two people, Mike and Sarah. Okay. Now, if I know each of them individually, the only way they think about me or remember me is when I reach out to them. But if I introduce you to both Mike and Sarah and Mike and Sarah to each other. When I hang out with Mike, then there's a good chance he'll bring me up and then you'll remember me. There'll be another point of exposure, another reminder, another strengthening of the relationship. Suddenly, you're getting closer and closer to me because I cannot manage thousands of relationships effectively, like one-on-one. It's just not realistic at the scale that I interact with people. But if you're now friends with all of my friends, then I've pulled you closer to my orbit. And so what happens is that now when I have an idea to share, when there's something important in my life, a company I'm trying to promote or a, a book that I, like, I just released, then I don't actually have to go to each person individually. What I can do is go across the community and know that the message will spread because there's when you talk to Mike or you talk to Sarah, They'll bring it up. And so the the stronger the network of connections, the better the tendency is to be able to promote the things that we care about and push those objectives. And so not only does it does it do us well from an emotional standpoint, having strong social ties and a tight-knit community, not only does it likely mean that we'll live longer or be more successful at work and so on, but it also means that the things that really matter to us become more likely to come true. I love that. I love that for so many reasons. And it's brilliant for so many reasons. And just 
two of the ones that 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 I would highlight are related to COVID now currently. That long COVID changes the brain completely, and people get these weird brain fog things. And it's, I won't go into the whole science of it, but one of the scientists that that I follow promotes as a way of healing. And I mean, I have a whole theory of what as well of and of promoting the healing, whatever. But they bring up social connection, and they because yeah. that changes, and it actually changes how the brain rewires. So it stimulates neuroplasticity and that kind of stuff, which is what you want when you've had damage to the brain. So just as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, this is what you what you're actually defining is. This whole very natural, you reactivating a very natural process in the brain. And then the whole concept of, if I hear you, I talk about a concept of enhancement and I hear you saying saying that. We're not here to compete with each other, we're here to enhance each other. So the mm-hmm. very picture that you've laid or the story that you've created there in, in, in your previous discussion is one of enhancement where there's no threat to someone else, but there's a trust. So therefore, if I trust you, I want to share about you and I like, oh, you've got to know about this one. And you know, we naturally do that when you know something that will help someone and you're in a conversation, oh, I read this book or this one said that or John said this. Or, so that beautiful enhancement of wanting to reach out and help others, which is so important for our psychoneurobiology, is yeah. happening. So, I mean, that's, that's just amazing. I mean, you as a behavioral scientist, you know exactly what I'm saying, but I, I love that. It's brilliant. There's a fantastic study by, I think it's Matt Lieberman and his wife. At, I think they were at UCLA. They were, I mentioned this in the book, they were looking at brain scans of people in the game Cyberball. My hunch is you've come across this study a bunch of times. Essentially, they were curious how the brain responds to social isolation or feelings of exile or social pain. And so they had people play a game called Cyberball. It's the dumbest game. You'll never actually play it. But the the game was you go into an fMRI, you're having your brain scanned. And on the screen, you control a character and there's two other characters and you're told that they're being controlled by other people and they're just passing a ball. And you can pick, okay, do I pass it to player one or player two? And then the ball keeps bouncing around. And after a while of doing this, the other two players just stop passing you the ball and just pass it to each other continuously. And suddenly you realize that you're being excluded. And when researchers looked at the scans, what happened was they almost couldn't differentiate the experience of social pain with physical pain. Yeah, that's, I've read a lot of that research. It's phenomenal. And so when they took it one step further, they had a large group of people come in. Half of them for the past two weeks had been taking a painkiller. And half of them had been given a placebo. And they repeated the experiment and found that those who had the actual painkillers experienced no social distress. And those who had the placebo did. And their conclusion was that pain is pain, regardless of if it's social or physical. And painkillers will actually affect our perception of of social pain. And that we kind of have to re-examine our relationship to these things because if somebody hits me then we feel like oh they get to go to jail right or like they, they should be punished in some way but if somebody hurts me we don't relate to it emotionally we don't relate to it in the same way even though the trauma could be just as profound or bigger. equally as profound yeah so the physical contact gets more attention than the I mean, emotional because you can't see it happening but your brain is still being affected and still changing and the same damage and yeah. You know, all the immune responses, that's a really, yeah, that's a really interesting, very, very interesting study. I was going to ask this later on, but just having said all these things that you're saying and going back to an earlier point, you talk in your book about networking and you quote an interesting, some a couple of interesting studies, you know, which page I'm talking about, 16 and 17. And, you know, it's always been like, I read these things and I'm smiling and thinking, gosh, I really agree. Finally, someone's, you know, like, I hate networking because it's so it's so narcissistic, as you say. It's like so you just you hand out what you can you can explain the whole thing. I just love the way you explain oh, it in your book. You can see sure. I've circled and whatever, and how networking is awful and people people feel dirty and yet there's a, there's a better way of doing it because people are trained in our social climate. If you're going to move in business, you have to network. You have to network. You have to network, and it's such a false situation. And you go into yeah. that. It's not deep, meaningful. Can do you mind sort of explaining that and explaining oh, sure. on that? So. When I was like 22 and like entering the workforce, I was told that if I want to succeed, I have to go out there and network. 
It's about meeting as many people as possible. It's a numbers game, right? And it produces this funny relationship to meeting people. People will go to events, networking events, and, and say, okay, I need to find out who the right person here is to do business with. And that context fundamentally makes us feel like we're using people, like it's transactional. It makes us feel actually dirty. Francesca Gino from Harvard Business School did a study where she looked at people's implicit association and found that overwhelmingly they feel like they need to wash because they feel dirty. And that's kind of wild. It We're is saying, wild. Okay. When I read that, although that's really wild. Yeah, like it's essentially saying, okay, if you want, we're prescribing this activity around making relationships that literally makes you uncomfortable and upset and dirty. And that's absurd. So the question was raised, then what doesn't make us feel that way? And Gino and her team found that essentially making friends doesn't feel that way. When we look to make genuine connections, we're actually really excited about it. And that doesn't seem to matter if you're an extreme introvert, an extreme extrovert. Everybody likes having friends. The question might be at what scale, right? Like if you're introverted, you might prefer a more intimate group, but then that's fine. Then now we need to ask the question of what actually causes us to become friends. And that's that common ground conversation that we had earlier. This idea that maybe for us to become friends, what we need is either shared activities or interests, right? So I know that you're a huge stamp collector and so am I. So we have shared interests or activities. I'm kidding. <laughs> I know. I was um, thinking when did I last collect a stamp? But anyway, whatever. Did you know something about me? I don't know. <laughs> no, I get it. I get what you're saying shared culture or religion, right? You, mm -hmm. There's a good chance that, is there kind of like a fitness class you love to take? Mm -hmm. Yes. What, yeah. What's your fitness? What's your go-to I love hot yoga and I used to go to do a lot of Orange Theory and... Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, wow. And, they're they're yeah. an impressive company. So if you found out that I was like a big Orange Theory person, suddenly we'd be talking for like an yeah. hour about like, what are your numbers and like yeah, all that yeah, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. How Which are you on the rower? And, yeah. <laughs> and did you enjoy Hell Week? <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> So now suddenly we have this common ground, right? And that's what tends to, to create friendships. Alternatively, we can focus on creating it. So what I do these days, when there's somebody who wants to hang out with me, most people say, Let's, why don't we go out for a drink? And I'm like, eh, that's okay. I'll pass. I want to be, you know, I don't need the calories. I, I want to be nice and slim so my wife doesn't divorce me. And so what I do is I invite them to a workout class. Because by going through the experience of a strenuous training together, it'll bond us more than just having a drink and doing an interview. <laughs> so my objective is to take to create common ground. Maybe that's taking a walk or doing an art class together or playing a game. But whatever it is, it's really about triggering those things that allows human beings to connect more deeply. That's amazing. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking of the research company that I do that because I don't work at a university. I have a research company that I contract to that make sure that I keep all my research non-biased and they handle all my statistics and, and guide me and so on. And the head of the company has become such a good friend because we both have an absolute and utter passion for designing research and doing research. Mm. And it's that common ground and doing it together, going through the process together, we can got to the point where we can literally complete each other's sentences. And so, you you know, there's that common ground, that, but because we've done stuff together and it just, it just reminded can me I of that. Can I actually take that one step further? Please though. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. You don't just have common ground. Common ground will give you a sense of familiarity. When you get to the point that you're completing each other's sentences, it gives you a sense of belonging, right? Now you have a certain feeling of safety that you're at home with the person, that what you say is not going to be judged, right? You can express an idea about like, oh, this is terrible. And they're like, yeah, this is terrible, right? Like you, there's this affirmation of who you are. And that's kind of this very high level of relationship that ultimately I would argue, and I think a lot of other researchers would argue that being seen being recognized without judgment is what we really want. We want to be able to put ourselves out there and not be concerned that somebody's going to make fun of us or ignore us. Interesting. 
because there's this thing called a, there's this misconception about how trust actually forms. And the basic unit of trust, as far as I can tell, is something called a vulnerability. You talk about that in your book, The Trust Factor, yeah. Absolutely. So it works like this. A vulnerability loop, let's say between two people, it could be between more. The two of us are walking down the street and you turn to me and say, John, man, (laughs) doing these podcasts has been like great, but it's so exhausting. I'm like, I need a break, right? So in that moment, you've signaled vulnerability. If I ignore you or make fun of you, Caroline, you're being weak, get over it. Then suddenly trust will be reduced because I've literally smacked down your vulnerability. But if I acknowledge it and I say, Caroline, I know what you're going through, that like I'm there too. I wrote this book during lockdown and I'm totally burned out. What are you doing for yourself to like, you know, kind of have healthy habits? Suddenly, You've seen that I'm vulnerable to the same degree and we're safe. So person one signals vulnerability, person two acknowledges it. I see that it happened and signals vulnerability in response. Person one acknowledges the other person's signal of vulnerability. Now we're safe at the same level of vulnerability. We know we can trust each other to this level and it gives us an opportunity to open up another level of a vulnerability loop. And that, at least when I speak to other neuroscientists and Experts, they say that's very consistent with the way that oxytocin is released, the cuddle chemical, right? Or the moral molecule. That when you complete that loop, it gives you that bump, that pro social behavior that lets people feel an acceptance. Yeah. And it does a whole bunch of other stuff too. That's such a lovely example you've given because you release something called anandamide as well, which is known as the bliss hormone. And then you get a balance in your brain waves and your brain oxygen change. It's just un- the, the downstream effect into your endocrine system down to your telomeres. It's just insane that's what that deep meaningful connection does. It's just, it's amazing. So that's why, I mean, that's why I love your work because I know the great impact that it's actually having on how we function mind, brain, and body. So that's my world, psychoneurobiology and all these great things that make it happen. So it's, I always tell people, I used to tell my patients, you know, they'd have a list of prescriptions and those would be read more, connect more, you know, all these kind of things that are just things that are life-giving and you teaching all of this and studying it as a behavioral scientist. It's just amazing. I love that. The holiday season is finally here. One thing I love to do at this time of year is to find the perfect gift for my loved ones, which I find so easy to do with Jenny Kane, my go-to shopping and holiday gifting destination for all things cozy and classic. At J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, there are so many amazing pieces that will keep family and friends smiling well into the new year and, if we are being honest, for years to come. I love that they have made it so easy to browse and shop online and I have even found a few gifts for myself in the process, like their cocoon style sweater that comes in a cardigan, crew neck and now cropped classic. This best-selling sweater really should be on everyone's holiday wish list. It is so cozy and easy to dress up or down, making layering style so easy over the holidays. You might already have a favorite sweater or pair of shoes, but if, if it doesn't make you say, I'll never take this off, it isn't Jenny Kane. When it comes to getting dressed, they believe in one thing, the art of simplicity, with a focus on comfort, quality, and timeless design. Jenny Kane makes pieces that truly never go out of style. Find your forever pieces at jennykane.com and get 15% off your first order when you use the code LEAF at checkout. That's J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code LEAF. The link and details will be in the show notes. Well, there's so many other areas. You talk about the Navy SEALs. Uh, you yeah. talk about a 28-year-old man. So I'm just finding so many things that are interesting. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that or does that work oh, here? The uh, the Marines or the Navy SEALs? Yeah, I got 28-year-old uh, was looking for... Hang on, I got all the things that 28-year-old me was looking for. I worked out oh, yeah, yeah. with the Navy so actually, SEALs to so, get in uh, shape. Yeah. One and of the people to- I hosted at a dinner is a Navy SEAL who spent 10 years on the global war on terror. Brilliant, brilliant guy. His name is Kaj Larson. And I was, you know, I when I met him, was pretty out of shape. I hadn't exercised in years. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was not in a healthy like physical state. And so he actually, I would fly out to LA and he has a a gym 
And he would train with me a few times a month. And that's what actually got me back into fitness was training with him and his co-owners, also a retired SEAL. And yeah, every time I'd be in LA, I'd go and train with them for a bit. And then... And that was your bond. That was the friendship that you created. So you did that together. And it makes me think of, I've got three, four children and they're all adults and three of them work with, with me. And we all work out together as well. So there's that shared... We'll go to hot yoga. We'll go to orange orange theory and and hot yoga. We love hot Mm -hmm. yoga. So, you know, body sculpts and here we're doing this and we're on the floor sweating away. And then the next minute we're doing some brain sweat back in in the office and that kind of thing. And it's just, it's that, it's doing that stuff together that really then cooking a meal together. You're so right. I mean, it's those things that really build that that bond between Mm -hmm. between people, which is so, it's it's amazing. You said the most universal, I I really like this. And you have said it already, but maybe you can take it a little deeper. The most universal strategy for success is creating meaningful connections with those who can impact you, your life, and things you care about. So that who can impact you? People are probably thinking, yeah, I get that. You know, you've got that. You said create meaningful connections. We understand that. But with those who can impact you, how do you know who's going to impact you is a question that I think would be worth delving into. Oh, that's interesting. So here's what I I ended up discovering. The people who've had the biggest impact on my life are never the people that I thought it would be. So I would curate at my dinners like, you know, Dan Kahneman came to one of the dinners and I was like, oh my God, I get to hang out with Dan Kahneman. Your listeners, Dan, and his research partner, Amos Tversky, literally shifted the entire course of economics by discovering something called prospect theory, which has to do with how illogical and irrational human beings are. And it created this entire field of behavioral economics. They won the Nobel Prize for it. And he was like, you know, a legend. Comes to my house and I was like, okay, I'm going to become besties with Dan Kahneman. That never happened, right? But the other guests at that dinner, some of them forever changed my life. There was a neuroscientist there who got me into research so that I ended up becoming a behavioral scientist. There's like, I became friends with the executive director of the International Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, which is the Emmys. So, you know, we became super close. And now almost every year I go to the Emmys. Now, like there's no reason for a behavioral scientist to be at the Emmys, but that was not a relationship that I was like, oh my God, I'm going to become friends with her. And then I'm going to go to the Emmy. No, it was completely unexpected. And consistently I've hosted over 2000 people. And the ones that I became very, very close with was never like, oh, that celebrity that I wanted to get to know or that Nobel laureate or that famous musician. But like this random person who's an artist who like, you know, now when I travel to different cities, they'll sometimes come and hang out. And that like, we're just super close. And so these people will be the ones that trigger my creativity or that will help me get fit. I never thought having a Navy SEAL at a dinner would lead me to like get back into exercise. and so. I think the key here is to understand you can be really strategic about who you want to connect with. And that's fantastic. But we tend to get myopic. When I ask people, who do they want to meet? It's always Oprah and Sir Richard Branson and Beyonce and Barack Obama and all these people. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. But let's be honest, you're not going to become friends with them. Right. But what you can do is find a thousand people who have similar characteristics and in, look to connect with all of them. And some of them will connect with you. And a few of those people will really impact your life and will become close friends. But you can't be so myopic thinking that it's that one person and only that one person. Because mm, you're limiting everything else along the way. So well, if I hear you correctly, it's you obviously like Beyonce or Oprah or whatever or Barack Obama for a reason. There's obviously something there if you get beyond the fame and all that stuff. But what is it that specifically? Yeah. yeah what's, what are you admiring? And it's to take those characteristics and look for those in a wide spectrum of people yeah. and see who you connect with. For every, let's say, Elon Musk, there's a thousand business minds that you don't even realize exist that maybe aren't the richest person in the world. But that doesn't really matter if you want to become rich. You don't have to have 200 billion. You can also just have 5 billion. And there's exactly. a lot of people who, like you could also have a hundred billion. One billion okay. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's, it's like, <laughs> and frankly, for the, like me meeting somebody who 
who has 200 billion and somebody who has 5 billion, that's not going to have it. Like what new knowledge am I going to get at one versus the other? I'm sure there's something there, but like, I'd probably have to be around them a really long time. And frankly, I'm going to be completely honest. I see what Elon Musk's work hours are like. I don't really admire that. Like, it's not something that appeals to me in the least. And so you might be able to get some of that magic dust off of him, but you might be giving up a lot in exchange. That's just not worth it. Mm, I get what you're saying. It's like people like yourself that are really into, into understanding the science, the why behind what we do as humans. That is just absolutely fascinating for me. So that would be characteristics that would, mm. yeah. So I see what you're saying. That's, that's actually, so, that's such a great answer that you've given there because, and the reason I ask that is because people are always, we're so encouraged to network as we've discussed. We're so encouraged to, you know, cover, surround yourself with influential people. That's why I wanted to dig a little deeper and you answered that so well. So thank you for answering yeah. that. It was, it was great. Spoken about, no, you've, you've spoken about this. How our data show a decay in the use of all communication with distance. So the oh, more yeah. often we see the someone, you, you spoke. Yeah, you spoke about as you spoke briefly oh, no, no, about I haven't, that. I haven't spoken about that. Oh, haven't you? So okay. the, the Allen curve is one of these interesting things, and we really see it coming to life during the pandemic. So this researcher from MIT, which is one of these prominent schools in the U.S., decided to look at communications and graph communications between people relative to how far their desks are from each other, and they found that the closer your desks are there's an exponential growth in communication, meaning that if our desks are next to each other, we will talk, we will text, we will email, we will Slack a ton. You move our desks a little bit further apart, it happens less frequently. And by the point you're at about 50 meters, you barely ever communicate. This is what's interesting about that. One is we're seeing this exposure idea again, that when I see you a lot, I'll think about you a lot, right? just like our initials and the dating stuff, right? And that initial conversation about the friends talking about friends, et cetera, et cetera. There's a similarity. Mm -hmm. So the issue is that now during the pandemic, when especially when people were sheltering at home, everybody was more than 50 meters away from each other. And if our communication drops dramatically, that has a pretty big impact. And so what we're seeing is that people are actually lonelier than ever. Now, what I didn't mention about that previous study about Americans being lonely, uh, that we went from three friends to two friends in less than a decade, people love to blame technology and social media. The real culprit is probably people moving for work. So in the US, if you move to go to a new school or go to get a new job and you switch cities, suddenly your social ties are reset because of this Allen curve. When you're distant from each other, you forget about one another. You spend less time communicating. So suddenly what happens is that you end up in a situation where you just aren't surrounding yourself with people anymore. You come to a new city and you have to create an entire new social circle. And if people move consistently, especially at the executive level, suddenly you find yourself in a situation. Very isolated. Yeah. And it's not because they lack social skills. It's that most of our friends are back wherever we were in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. And so the issue right now is that social skills are like any muscle. They're what's called anti. Yeah, they're anti-fragile. So if I take this glass and I drop it, it'll shatter. It's fragile. But if I take my muscle and apply pressure to it, it'll get stronger. Social skills are like that. And in general, if we don't apply pressure on our social skills, if we don't go out and talk to people and practice conversations and all that kind of stuff, then our social skills atrophy. And during the pandemic, what we're seeing, I would argue, is that our social skills atrophied. And not only that, but when people feel lonely, then they begin to think that they're deserving of loneliness. In the sense that if I have three friends and I suddenly go down to two friends, then I think people don't like me and I don't, I'm not deserving of being around people. Mm, so we take it personally and it affects your identity. Yeah, and it isolates you further. So, And the reason that you might go from three friends to two friends might be completely accidental, right? Like somebody moves 
and suddenly you feel more isolated and lonely. And then people tend to say, think it's something that they've done. There's a distorted perception of the whole situation mm-hmm. because you we what we miss that, so we don't know how to perceive it, so we process it incorrectly. Yeah. So interesting. So it's called the Allen curve, A L L E N. I was yes, trying to find that's, it. That's that equation of Allen found. Yeah, there you go. Allen found. Okay. Yeah, see the name there. Perfect. Wow. These days, with the holiday season officially here, I don't have a lot of extra time to spend on my skincare routine, which is why I love Oak Essentials. They make it easy to create an everyday skincare routine that's clean, effective, and convenient with a comprehensive five step skincare regimen. Made in California from plant-based quality ingredients that are packed with purpose, Oak Essentials is the best gift I have given my skin this year. I use their balancing mist every day and have gotten so many compliments on my skin since I started using this amazing product. It is especially useful on the plane as it keeps my skin hydrated and is great if you're traveling a lot this holiday season. Crafted for women at any age, Oak Essentials' highly effective skincare products serve as the ultimate foundation for glowing, healthy skin. Whether you're starting from scratch or filling in the gaps, Oak Essentials makes skincare one less thing to worry about. They make clean, foundational skincare for everyone at every age. Reveal your best skin with Oak Essentials at oakessentials.com. You can purchase the entire 5-step routine for $195 or try your first product for 15% off when you use the code LEAF at checkout. That's O-A-K-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S dot com promo code LEAF. The link and details will be in the show notes. Okay, so there's so many more questions, but I'm going to just kind of end with this one and then we'll have to do a part two because this stuff is so good. You separated people into four groups, global mm-hmm. influencers, industry influencers, blah, 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 blah. I mm-hmm. want to talk just very briefly about influencers because it's like the thing at the moment, being an influencer on social media. And I know you don't really mean that, but... Yeah, Let's just yeah. talk about the concept of influencing and how to, you have it under the chapter titled How to Connect with Anyone. And I just really like what you did here. So can you briefly go through that and explain what you meant by that? Sure. So when I talk about influence, let's just, as a point of reference, I'm not talking about having a large following on Instagram. That's fantastic. That's really having an audience. It's kind of like yes. publishing your own newspaper or something like that. It tends to be one-way communication for the most part. Like Taylor Swift doesn't care if I comment on her photo, right? Like Taylor just wants to know that I liked it. So the kind of influence that we actually care about in life is, for example, getting our boss to take our ideas seriously or getting into that orange theory class when there's only one spot left or getting our kid into the school we want or getting them to eat a healthy meal. Now, that kind of influence really generally isn't affected by social media followers. It's mostly going to be affected by who you're connected to, how much they trust you, and the sense of belonging that you share. And so if I can understand how to connect with people more effectively and build trust with them quickly, then I have a huge ability to produce influence, right? To have an impact on an outcome. Now. To understand how to connect with people, we need to realize that people's social pressures are different at different levels of influence. So an Oprah, an Elon Musk, Beyonce, a Barack Obama have global influence. If, if Oprah decides to do something, there's stories about it all over the world. She literally can't walk probably in any country without being recognized. Beyonce, same thing. But Then there's a level down from that, which are the industry influencers. These people have an ability to impact an industry through their thought leadership, their position, or their previous success. So if you're the CEO, CMO of a company, if you've won the Nobel Prize, people don't generally know what you look like. Do you have a Grammy even or an Olympic medal? You've had an impact on your industry. But once again, it's not like you're on a global scale. And so What drives these people is going to be different and how we connect with them is different from the global influencers and from the level down from there, which is community influencers. People have an ability to have an impact on a community, maybe a few hundred, maybe a few thousand. In that case, it could be a martial arts master, a reverend, a local fitness instructor or something like that, an up-and-coming music artist. That's fantastic. 
but it's just on a different scale, right? And their social pressures are once again different from your personal influencers. Those who, like your, you work with three of your kids, you said, right? Mm-hmm. So they're probably very large influences in your career now and vice versa. And so all of these things are fundamentally unique to the level at which somebody operates. And so in the book, I kind of break down the science of how different they are and what to do about it. Absolutely. It's fantastic. Well, John, this has been fascinating. And as I said, we need a part two because we only got through the first few bits and pieces and touched on the, but I think what we covered was just really important basic stuff for people to understand their power of just, you know, believing in that concept because we hear the word deep meaningful connection thrown around all over the place. And, and so to really dive in and look at it from a different angle, like you do and the dinner party concept and just the things you've said and how to choose people that you want to impact you, you know, that just those things are very, very valuable. And what your work, I think is fantastic. It's so valuable. So thank you for what you do. And thank you for joining me today. And it's been amazing. How can people get the book and get hold of you and find out more? Oh, wow. Okay. So the book's available in everywhere that books are available. So, you know, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. You can get it. It's now in Korean. So if you want it in a Korean format, I think it's called Yes24 is the big like online book retailer there. It's being translated into Russian and Czech and Chinese and we'll see what else. So, and if you want to follow me or connect with me, I'm John Levy, TLB, J-O-N-L-E-V, as in Victor, Y as in yellow, T like Thomas, I like Lion, B like boy, John Levy, TLB on Instagram or Twitter, or even my website is .com. So please feel free to reach out and I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. We'll put all those links in the show notes. And thank you for your time. It's been wonderful. I really enjoyed it. This has been a treat. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leith. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors.